I think in every society, there's a torturable class. There's a group of people we just don't care about. And in this society, it is black and brown men with criminal records. Welcome to Ready, Set, Gov, the Better Government Association's podcast. I'm Solomon Lieberman. Today, I'm joined by John Conroy. John is an author, teacher, journalist, playwright, and currently the senior investigator at the Roderick and Solange MacArthur Justice Center. John is widely known and respected for decades of reporting, largely for the Chicago Reader, that uncovered torture and a culture devoid of accountability at the Chicago Police Department. The officer at the center of this infamy, John Burge, died yesterday, September 19, 2018. He was 70. We show respect when a person passes away, but Burge has a legacy that must be understood, especially considering what's also going on today the trial of Chicago Police Department officer Jason Van Dyke over the killing of Laquan McDonald. Well, John, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Son. So we talk about the past, the present, and the future on Ready, Set, Gov. So let's start with the past. Who was Burge? John Burge grew up on the South Side, went to Bowen High School, uh, was a good student, uh, joined the ROTC there, clearly seemed to want to be in the military. The Vietnam War was going on. He got out and went to the University of Missouri for a semester and flunked out. Then he enlisted in the Army. Um, And then he volunteered to go to Vietnam. He volunteered twice. And eventually he was sent to a military base called Dong Tom. He was a military policeman there. And he was there for... I think less than two years, and then he was honorably discharged and came back and after a brief time joined the Chicago police. And this is where we get into the intersection of your lives. Where where did that start? Where did you were a journalist at the time with the Chicago Reader? When did you intersect with Burge? I intersected with Burge in nineteen eighty-nine. there was a civil suit in federal court. That had been filed by a man named Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson had shot dead two officers, Fahey and O'Brien, in February of 1982. He was at large for five days, and then he was arrested and brought to the Area 2 police station. He confessed to the crime and was released to some patrol wagon drivers. They took him to the lockup, and the lockup keeper refused to take him because he was in such bad physical condition. Uh, So the wagon drivers had nothing to do except to take him to Mercy Hospital. That's what is mandated. And Mercy Hospital documented 14 injuries before one of those officers pulled out a gun, and as a result, the sewing up of Andrew Wilson stopped. Mm. He then was booked at Cook County Jail the next day, and his intake photo shows uh, little marks from, it looks like a little alligator came up and bit him Hmm. on his nose, and uh, you can also see it on his ears in photos that were taken the next day. And he told his public defenders a story that he'd been wired up to an electrical device, hand-cranked, that had alligator clips on the end of it, and he'd also been shocked with another device. And while he was being shocked... With the hand crank device, officers had held him steady, and he was being held steady up against a hot radiator. Mm. And he was wearing clothes, so I don't think this was actually intentional, but he they were inflicting parallel burns on his chest. And Wilson later testified that he couldn't even feel the burns, that the pain in his head was so great. Mm. 
So he was convicted of the two murders, and he got the death penalty, and then the Illinois Supreme Court overturned that conviction, said that the state hadn't proved that his confession had been given voluntarily, and so they tried him again without the confession. He was convicted, and then he filed a civil suit arguing that he'd been tortured by the Chicago police. So I came in to cover that trial. Do you remember when you started to make a connection between Burge the man and what you were seeing and learning about in your reporting? Burge was the commanding officer of Area 2 violent crimes at the time of the murders of Fahey and O'Brien. So he directed the investigation. He was the first man through the door when they arrested Andrew Wilson. And so there was an immediate connection. Uh, Burge was the first one named in the complaint. So... I watched Wilson testify, Uh, I watched Burge testify, I watched the other officers testify. There were a lot of times when we were sitting around in the hallway waiting for the judge and, you know, I became kind of a fixture on the wall there because I wasn't filing anything. The reader was letting me just sit through the whole trial. Hmm. And so I didn't seem like much of a threat after a while and so I got to know them a little bit. There actually were two trials. The first trial ended in a mistrial, so the Mm-hmm. There was another one, and at the after that, Burge gave me an interview with some ground rules that I couldn't talk about the current case. So I got to know him a little bit in that. Okay. So this you start this started in 1989. Was that when you sat down with Burge for the yes. first time? Yeah. Can you recall that interview? It, yeah. It was um, you know began with him very suspicious, and he had another officer come in, and he said. This is so you don't put any words in my mouth. And I said, well, how about I'll tape this and then I'll give you the tape and you can make a copy. So he called his attorney. His attorney said, that's better. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, he, I offered him the tape and he said, "Now nah, you take it. Just give me a copy. So that's what we did. He was, um, I liked him. You know, he struck me as the kind of guy I'd see at a family picnic who, uh, you know, if my elderly aunt had car trouble, he'd be the first guy out there trying to get it started. He was self-deprecating. You know, I knew a couple of stories about heroic things that he'd done, and he said, you know, what would you hear about that? You know, uh, he he wouldn't have brought it up if I hadn't. Do you remember any of those Yes. Uh, One of them, he was a patrolman down on, I think, 47th Street, and he got a call, a woman with a gun in a drugstore. Went to the drugstore, and there was a woman there named Irma Moody who had a revolver pressed against her throat, and she was threatening to kill herself. He talked her into going back to her house, her her apartment, to uh, check on her baby, and uh, then she asked for some clergy, and he arranged, and three priests arrived, and they were talking for about an hour and a half, and Burge became convinced that she was about to pull the trigger. Hmm. And so he signaled to his partner that he's going for the gun. He went for the gun. She pulled the trigger. He got his thumb in the firing mechanism, and it didn't go off. Hmm. Uh, So he really saved her life. Another incident, he was just driving down the street off-duty. He's carrying a snub-nosed five-shot revolver, no extra bullets, and he sees this car park outside a photo mat. One guy goes in, and then he comes running out. And Burge thinks there's something wrong here. He parks his car, runs into the photo mat. The woman says, we've just been robbed. He jumps back in the car. He's got no radio. He follows this car, and when it stops at a stoplight, 
he sneaks up behind it, not knowing how much firepower these, these three guys in the car, these three guys have. And he orders them all out of the car. <laughs> he puts them down on the road with their hands behind their head. And then he said to me, there's never a cop when you need one. <laughs> and, and so he just stood there waiting for a police officer to arrive. This is a man you know pretty well. No, I, I wouldn't say I knew him pretty well, um, but I... His story and his... Yeah, 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 yeah. So this was 1989, almost 30 years ago. What unfolded from there for you as a reporter uh, and your your presence on the, on this beat, effectively? Well, I filed a story in 1990. Uh, it was called House of Screams. It was probably 10,000 words, and it uh, basically walked through the Andrew Wilson case and made the point that there were other instances in which people had alleged there had been electric shock at Area 2 and other forms of torture. And it was the first time, really, that somebody had taken it all apart and uh, included the police defense and as well as the allegations and the evidence that there was against Burge which was pretty compelling given the photographs of Wilson's nose and ears and, and his chest. And also the fact that the state's attorney had gone in to take Wilson's confession and hadn't asked a voluntariness question. He hadn't asked, are you giving this confession voluntarily? That's a requirement when you give a, you know, you'll, you can look at any homicide confession given in this city and you'll see some version of that question. And it wasn't there. And this was a guy who taught this is a supervisor. He taught how to take confessions. So I thought the evidence was pretty compelling. So we also thought that the dailies were going to take over this story. Mm-hmm. And in those days, the Trib and the Sun-Times were at full strength. They could throw five or six right. reporters at a story, and the next day it wouldn't be yours anymore. Right. And so... You know, the editor said, I don't think we need any more of these. And I knew where exactly where it was coming from. Um, So we waited, and, uh, you know, the Office of Professional Standards reopened its investigation, uh, citing that article as a starting point. And they— Your article, the House of Screams piece. Yeah, and then they concluded that there had been torture. Wilson had been tortured. There had been systematic torture at Area 2. And so eventually this resulted in police board hearings— into whether Burge should be employed by the police department. Mm -hmm. And they fired him, basically. Um, But they never said that he tortured anybody. Uh, So the dailies covered that, but they sort of did it as a one-day story. And nobody said, well, wait a minute, you know, if Wilson got tortured, what about these other guys? And there were 10 guys on death row who were going to die if nobody did anything. And nobody was doing anything other than the attorneys, their attorneys. So Um, you... Kept doing something. So then I went back in, and uh, we kept filing, and I did more than, I think I did more than 20 stories and more than 100,000 words over the course, a bit until 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So reflecting back on all those words, all those stories, all that time spent, what are the results of that work? Um, The first thing I would observe is how ineffective it was. Um, that, you know, until George Ryan pardoned four men who'd been tortured who were on death row in 2003, basically nothing happened. And then nothing happened again. Um, Those four men filed civil suits, and 
as uh, the first step in a civil suit is you send somebody written interrogatory. So Burge got these written questions and he answered them. And he denied in very broad terms that he'd ever seen any brutality in the Chicago Police Department. So that was clearly not true. Mm -hmm. And the statute of limitations on that statement was running and there's a five-year statute in in federal court. And shortly before it expired... Patrick Fitzgerald, the U.S. attorney, indicted Burge. He couldn't touch him for the torture, but he indicted him for perjury and obstruction of justice for lying about it in the course of a civil suit. Mm -hmm. And then Burge was convicted in 2010. He was sentenced to four years, Mm -hmm. served those, and uh, got out. So what effect did this have? Um, I, I can't say that it was my journalism that led to Burge's prosecution, I think it contributed. There were civil suits. There were civil attorneys who were really involved, civil rights attorneys, defense attorneys. Um, There were some community groups. There was not much reaction from the public. They seemed to be living quite comfortably with the torture, as was the city council and the bar associations and ministers and priests and Mm -hmm. rabbis. You know, there was no great movement to do anything about it. And why do you, can you, do you, why? I'm sure that's a question you've wrestled with. Yeah. I think in every society there's a torturable class. There's a group of people we just don't care about. Mm-hmm. And in this society, it is black and brown men with criminal records. Mm-hmm. But I backtrack a little bit because um, Joey Mogul and Alice Kim and some other activists— Joey Mogul, an attorney with the People's Law Office, um, began organizing in, I don't know, maybe 2012. And in 2015, this amazing thing happened. Without any litigation, the city passed a reparations ordinance Mm -hmm. that acknowledged the torture in very graphic terms, you know, applied electric shock to genitals, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, It set aside a fund of $5.5 million for reparations for people who had not been able to file civil suits because their statute of limitations had passed uh, with a limit of $100,000. So 57 men got something. Um, And it also mandated that a history unit be taught on the Burge torture in 8th and 10th grade classes at Mm -hmm. Chicago Public Schools. So I'm sure some of your words will find their way into those units. I, I think I'm in the background of that. Uh, not, I'm yeah. certainly not in the forefront. Um, so that's a long way of answering your question of <laughs> why didn't anything change? Some things did. Mm-hmm. Can I ask just when you heard, I assume yesterday, that he had passed away, did, did you have a reaction to it? Yeah, uh, it's kind of confused um, because I think there's a lot of focus on him as Mm -hmm. the source of all evil. And Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be that uh, he was an ambitious guy. He was a leader of men. I think he had at some level good instincts. You know, when he was in high school, he, he was part of a group that collected 900 cans of food for the poor in South Chicago the neighborhood of South Chicago. Um, 
And I think if somebody had pulled him aside the first time he'd gone astray and said, Bird, you do that again and you'll be guarding the parking lot at police mm-hmm. headquarters, um, that would have been the end of it. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, I have no doubt would have still risen through the ranks. He didn't need the torture to do that. Um, and, you know, the sky was the limit. He could have been superintendent, I think. He, he had the political ability and, you know, in the police department, he, it's like everywhere else, you need connections and he appeared to have had them. He, you know, he was a detective at the age of 24. Mm. That's really young yeah. after two years on the force. Um, so uh, I think it's wrong to put the blame on Burge. Had he been properly supervised, wouldn't have happened. So a lot of people over this last 24 hours and going forward are going to remember him as that focal point or that the person of evil. Um, what would you rather they remember or rather they think about spend their time on? Why the Chicago Police Department is so difficult to reform and uh, what is it about the culture of the police department that allowed this to happen, that allowed... Um, the whole Laquan McDonald incident, you know, when one police officer shoots a kid who's not a threat 16 times and then the other officers cover up and then supervisors who've seen the video, seen the dash cam video, they also cover up. Why? What's in that culture? Yeah. So speaking of that, you you have a mayor who's on his way out. You have... uh, Lisa Madigan, our longest-serving attorney general, on the way out. Um, if you had the opportunity to sit sometime after the presumed runoff in March or April with the new mayor and the AG and and give some guidance on what to do from here, what would you advise? What would you talk about? First of all, I, I'd advise them to talk to somebody else. <laughs> there are people who are much better at this than I am. Um, I... Uh, would advise them to look at that culture um, Mm -hmm. and to, you know, right now we have the prospect of real reform. We're we're facing this consent decree, which will lay down in great detail um, what has to be changed in the police department. That Department of Justice report of a couple of years ago was very thorough. And so I think that, you know... um, there's a blueprint that the details of it haven't been worked out yet and the entirely. And I have no doubt that, you know, when it is finally signed and sealed that uh, some people will be disappointed. That would be natural. But some things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And the faster that happens, the better. Yeah. Well, let me just say before we close here, uh, hearing you say that you felt like your work didn't do too much, I'll tell you that I'll at least represent all the journalists that I know is that we aspire to be as as good and thoughtful as you have been in your career. So you've done that, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, John. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ready, Set, Gov, a production of the Better Government Association. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps people find this podcast. 
For more information about us, go to bettergov.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get future Ready, Set, Gov episodes. Our production team includes Madeline Dubeck, Rachel Levin, Anam Hather, Mia Sato, Starlin Matheny, and Patrick Judge, with audio production by Mix Kitchen.